George Whitfield was one of the greatest preachers of all time, certainly one of the greatest in the English language. During the mid-1700s, George Whitfield preached to millions of people in both England and the American colonies. Whitfield was bold and uncompromising when he preached. He didn't soften the message to make it more palatable. He had many supporters and many admirers, but probably none so staunch as a woman named Lady Huntington. She was a countess in England. She loved Whitfield's preaching, and she sought every opportunity to help promote him and and to get his name out there so that people would come and hear the gospel message. On one occasion, she invited some of her friends to go hear Whitfield. One of her friends was the Duchess of Buckingham, who in fact did go listen to Whitfield's preaching, but found it not to her liking. She wrote a letter back to Lady Huntington telling her of her experience. This is what she said. I thank your ladyship for the information concerning these preachers. Their doctrines are most repulsive and strongly tinctured and impertinent, disrespectful toward their superiors, in that they are perpetually endeavoring to level all ranks and do away with all distinctions. It is monstrous, listen to this, it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common lecher that crawls on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. And I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish in such a sentiment that so much at variance with your high rank and good breeding. Do you hear what she's saying? I can't believe I'm being told by these these rough preachers out in the field that I'm a sinner like these common, ordinary people. I'm I'm a good, upstanding citizen. And her attitude is shared by many people down through the ages. The preaching of sin is offensive. Many people would step back and say, me, a sinner? I'm not like those people out there. But I would say that Whitfield's preaching is entirely biblical on this point. Because all have sinned. We are sinners. Some, however, choose not to recognize it. Now, I mentioned already, our text this morning comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. And the title of the message is, It's Good to Be a Sinner, which is kind of an odd title for a sermon. You don't expect a pastor to tell you that it's good to be a sinner, right? I mean, how could it be good? I mean, isn't being a sinner a bad thing? Doesn't sin separate us from God? Yes, being a sinner is a huge problem. But what I mean by that is, it's not so much that it's good to be a sinner, but it's good for us to know that we are sinners, to recognize that we are without good in us. The Bible says that we are, in fact, sinners. So for us to admit that is simply to admit and acknowledge what the Bible says. Only those who realize they are sinners, who recognize the seriousness of their disease, will seek the Savior. You have to know that you're sick in order to seek the doctor. The the main idea of our passage is really stated pretty clearly by Jesus in verse 17. He says it like this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Now, by that expression, Jesus does not mean that the Pharisees are righteous or that Uh, They do not need a physician. He does, however, make the point that only those who see themselves as sinners will come to the Savior. 
See, Christ came to save sinners. If you think you're too good for Jesus, well, then you're going to walk right past the Redeemer and walk right into hell. I want to distill this idea and the whole idea of this passage really into this simple question. Are you too good to be saved? Are you too good to be saved? That is in your own eyes. Do you think to yourself, well, I'm not really that bad. I'm certainly not the worst person ever. Many people walk past salvation thinking themselves too good. If you're not already there, Mark chapter 2. Last time we looked at this passage and this chapter, we saw an event that happened in the life of Jesus which introduced religious conflict into the scene. Remember, a, a paralytic was lowered through the roof and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And this begins the controversy which is going to exist between Jesus and the Pharisees. And this controversy continues all the way through chapter 2. In fact, every story in chapter 2 follows the same basic uh, outline. Jesus does something. The Pharisees ask an incriminating question, and then Jesus answers marvelously. So in the case of the paralytic, he's lowered. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees ask a question. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus responds by healing the man. We'll see this pattern continue. Every story in chapter 2 follows that pattern. Here we'll see it as well. This time not with a miracle or not a healing, but rather something Jesus does which causes serious offense to the Pharisees. Now I've provided you an outline in your bulletin this morning, but what I'd like to do before we get to the outline, before we get to the three points... I'd like to just walk our way through the passage, understand what's going on, and then we're going to backtrack. We're going to go back over some lessons to be learned from the passage. So let's walk through it, make some observations as we go, and then we'll come back to some of those outline points. So Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, this passage is one of the best to show the compassionate heart of Jesus towards sinners. You'll notice in verse 13, it begins back at the Sea of Galilee. Uh, This may have happened on the same day when Jesus healed the paralytic, But that doesn't really matter. The point is, the scene transitions now to the Sea of Galilee. Now, the city of Capernaum, where Jesus had had been doing his ministry and healing and all of that, was just off the sea. It was a fishing village. So he wouldn't have had to walk very far to get down to the, the seashore. And he's walking there. Perhaps he wanted to get alone. Perhaps Jesus wanted a little bit of, of quiet time, personal time. 
But, of course, he doesn't get it, does he? Look at verse 13. He went out by the sea, and all the multitude came to him. So people are flocking around Jesus. Everywhere he goes, they're around in droves. And Jesus does what he always does. He begins to teach men and women about the God who loves them and the God who prepared a way for them to be saved. But it's also a message of warning for all those who would reject God's gift would die eternally. It was verse 13. They came to him and he taught them, just as he always did. But that's not the, the heart of the story. It continues. Verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now, Jesus is walking here, perhaps walking back to Capernaum from where he was by the sea. And right there along the road was a tax office. Now, again, Capernaum was along a major trade route. There were lots of roads that intersected right around Capernaum, and so it made sense to have a tax office there. That way, all the trade going through would be taxed as it came, and taxes would be collected at that office. Now, to understand the significance of verse 14 and what's going on here, we have to understand something about tax collectors. It's broadly recognized that tax collectors were not good people. They were not people you wanted to have in your group of friends. Uh, Ancient times, especially during this period of history, they were viewed with hatred by the Jewish people. Uh, You'll notice that when tax collectors are mentioned, it's almost always tax collectors and sinners. You, You don't find them apart. They're always together. To be a tax collector was, in essence, to be a sinner. They were, they were hated and looked down upon. And we can understand some of the reasons. First of all, the Roman Empire itself was an odious thing to the Jewish people. They were Gentile overlords. And so they never really liked being under the Roman thumb. But Rome had to collect taxes. That's how they made their money. All their provinces would be taxed. And to do it, they would get local tax collectors. Rather than put a Roman official there, which the Jewish people would find even just as offensive, they would get a local person, a Jew, to sign up and become a tax collector. So not only were they collecting taxes, they were also kind of traitors to their country. These were backstabbers. You know, they were once one of us, but now they've turned on us. And in many ways, that's, uh, that's almost worse, isn't it? At least for the Jewish people living in Capernaum. You know, it's always worse to have somebody on your own that turns on you. I know this is kind of a negative illustration, but, you know, in the world of the mafia, you know, the mafia doesn't really like police, but you know who they really don't like is a snitch, somebody who turns on them, somebody who rats them out. And so it was here that the Jews really didn't like these people because they were turncoats, traitors. They were also people who had a really bad reputation. First of all, nobody likes to pay taxes anyways, right? Tax day comes, nobody's looking forward to visiting the tax man. But these guys in particular would make themselves very wealthy. Here's how the tax system worked. Rome said you've got to collect, let's say for each person, you've got to collect five denarius, five coins. Okay, well, the tax collector could add his fees on top of that. 
So he would come along and say, well, you've got to pay taxes. You have to pay 10 denarius. Well, you couldn't argue with him. You couldn't fight with him because if you were, then you would, they would say you're not paying your taxes and you're, you're an enemy of the state. But you knew in your heart that the taxes really weren't five denarius. You knew that he was going to pocket that five extra. And that's exactly what they did. And they became very wealthy this way because they could charge basically whatever they wanted in taxes. You couldn't say anything about it, and they would pocket all the, the excess. And so these tax collectors became wealthy on the backs of their Jewish brethren. Again, greedy, filthy practice. But nevertheless, part of why tax collectors were so hated. And the people would grudgingly pay, but they certainly didn't like it, and they certainly didn't like people like Levi. In fact, they hated tax collectors so much that even touching a tax collector would make a person unclean, according to the Mishnah and the Talmud, which were Jewish traditions. They were excluded from the synagogue. If you were a tax collector, you were not welcome on Saturday morning. Furthermore, I read this, and this is the first time I'd ever encountered this, that if a tax collector dropped a coin into a beggar's cup, the beggar was told by the rabbis, dump the coins on the street, you don't want their money. They're unclean. Well, the closest thing I can think of in comparison in modern days is perhaps lawyers. You know, lawyers just have sort of a, again, there's lots of good lawyers out there, not saying that, but almost everywhere you go, you can tell a lawyer joke and people will laugh, even if there's lawyers in the crowd. Because, you know, it's some kind of crooked lawyer joke. But here's the difference. When we do it, it's sort of in jest. We, we all know it's humorous. There was nothing humorous about tax collectors, all right? They were despised. It wasn't a joke. It was real. So maybe the better comparison today is politicians. I think everywhere you go in America, people will say, yeah, politicians are crooked. Politicians are out for their own interests. We, we don't much care for politicians. And again, the similarities aren't exact, but that's how people felt about the tax collectors. They were not people you wanted to have around. So it was shocking when Jesus walks by this tax office and he sees a man named Levi. Now, you probably know him better by his other name, Matthew. He becomes one of the 12 disciples. He writes one of the Gospels. But for many years, he was a tax collector, the son of Alphaeus. Now, we also know that one of the other disciples, James, not the brother of John, but the other James, was also the son of Alphaeus, perhaps a half-brother or brother of Matthew. Nevertheless, Jesus comes by and he stops and he sees Levi and he says, follow me. Here, Jesus calls a bona fide sinner to join his crew of disciples. You know, and based on where this story goes, it seems clear to me that that Levi had no delusions of his own goodness. He knew who he was. He knew what people said about him. He knew what people thought of him in his profession. It's not like he was sitting in his tax office thinking, well, I'm a, pretty, I'm a pretty good Jew. In fact, he probably walked around with guilt every day because people made sure he didn't forget about it. Here, Jesus calls him. And most people in Capernaum would rather have spit on Levi than talk to him. But here Jesus takes somebody whom the world hates and rejects, who was the lowest person, the worst person in their eyes, and he chooses him to be a follower 
Have you ever had this thought pass through your mind? Why did God ever choose me? I'm not a great person. I'm not a good person. I don't, I don't have that much to bring to the table. I'm nothing special. I'm just a sinner. Well, then you probably have the same thoughts that Matthew has had. I imagine he was probably wondering to himself, why would Jesus choose me? I'm worse than a no- nobody. I'm a tax collector. However, Matthew responds to Jesus' invitation to come and follow him immediately, right? It says in verse 14, he arose and followed him. He didn't wait. He left behind the tax tables. He left behind the lifestyle that went with it, and he followed Jesus. And what, how should he respond? How should he respond to this? Well, with thanks and praise, and that's what happens. In the very next scene, there's a banquet going on, a dinner at Levi's house, and all of his sinner friends are there. And this may have been a farewell banquet. This might have been Matthew saying, I'm, I'm leaving the tax business. I'm leaving all of it behind. I'm leaving this, and I want to honor Christ. And so he has this banquet, and people gather there, people whose reputation were right alongside of the tax collectors, no doubt. Now, why did Matthew just up and leave? Again, I I posit that this was probably not the first time, certainly not the first time Matthew had heard about Jesus. I mean, he lived in Capernaum, for heaven's sake. Everybody in the city knew about Jesus and what he was doing, the healings and the miracles that happened there. But my guess is Matthew, even though he probably would have had to stand far off, had probably listened to Jesus' teaching before. He maybe had listened to the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it probably convicted him and probably made him realize that he fell desperately short of God's standards, that he was not a good man. He was a sinful man who needed a Savior. So when Jesus called him, he knew who he was and he knew what he needed. And I think that's why he's so anxious to follow him. And he invites his friends to do likewise. At the banquet, here's Jesus dining with them. Now, it's often been repeated that Jesus was a friend of sinners. And that is true. However, sometimes people will use that phrase, Jesus, friend of sinners, to suggest that Jesus was perfectly okay with sinners and their lifestyle. And sometimes when I hear people use that phrase, you know, Jesus, friend of sinners, they they do it in such a way as to imply that Jesus would be more at home in a pool hall or a bar than he would be in a church. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Yes, Jesus is a friend of sinners. I know that because he's my friend. But I think there's a key word in verse 15, if you look at it. The very last phrase, there were many there and they followed him. Jesus wasn't celebrating their sinful lifestyles. No, these were people who were leaving their lifestyles. These were people who wanted Jesus, who wanted to walk a new path. Yes, they had a lot of baggage. Yes, they had a lot of history, but they were making a break from that past. They were wanting to follow Jesus. So please don't use the phrase friend of sinners to imply that Jesus can just just overlook sin and actually pats it on the back. He doesn't. But you can see how this would create quite a scandal, right? I mean, this is a rowdy group of people Jesus is with. I mean, he's not going out and binge drinking with them on the weekend, but they're rough around the edges. They had a reputation, and yet Jesus loved them and summoned them to follow him. 
And so the scandal arises, verse 16. The Pharisees and scribes are standing off and, and wondering, how is it that he eats with tax collectors and sinners? You know, this, this is something you just don't do. You know, if touching a leper was bad, if touching a leper made one unclean, how much worse to eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because when you eat with someone, at least in ancient times, it was a very close thing. It's not like Jesus was just um, you know, standing afar off with the Pharisees. No, he's down with them. He's sharing food with them, touching them, these unclean sinners. And so Pharisees are just aghast at this. How could he fellowship with them? Fellowshipping with people who aren't even welcome in the synagogue. It shouldn't be done. You notice, by the way, in verse 16, it's the way it's said, you know, the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collector, and then they asked his disciples. So you kind of get the idea that they're standing a long ways off. You know, they don't even want to get near the house. They're looking in, and I imagine, in, you know, in my mind, they're standing there looking at the house with all the laughter and talking going on inside, and one of the disciples, maybe carrying uh, some food into the banquet, walks past, and they stop him and say, hey, we got a question. What's Jesus doing in there with all those people, those low lives? See, they, they stand aloof. We're different. We're separate. We're not like these people. I believe there are times that we can be tempted to have a Pharisee heart. We, not, we might not be as quite as open about it as they were, but we still see ourselves as pretty good people, not like the sinners inside the house. Not like those other people. You know, we wouldn't go around parading and saying we're more righteous than other, other people, but we subconsciously think it. We think that we're better than others. It's like this cartoon that I found. We can pull it up. You know, sometimes we can be this church. It says twice as small or uh, half as big, but twice as righteous, you know. And we wouldn't put that on a sign out in front of our church, but we sometimes think it. We sometimes act like it. I like what R. Kent Hughes writes. He says, none of us are Pharisees philosophically, but we may be practically. Are there people you would stand aloof from, that you would look at from a distance? Are there people you would be upset if you saw them in church? We want our church to be filled with people who look like us and act like us and vote like us, etc., But if the church exists to reach the lost, if the church exists to reach the world, we shouldn't be scandalized by lost people. We don't approve of their lifestyle. We don't embrace their worldview. But we love them and show them the kind of compassion Jesus showed tax collectors. Why? Because this is the same kind of love that Jesus has shown to you. So Christ responds to the Pharisees with this little proverb in verse 17. Those who are sick have no need of a physician. Or excuse me, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus makes it plain. You know, those who who deem themselves good and proper people, who don't need a savior, are the real ones who are spiritually destitute then jesus explains it in case we misunderstand i did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance so in other words it's no surprise that the great physician is down here among the sick people of the world is it i mean he came for such as these 
Now, there's been a lot of strange things that we've seen over the last couple of years, what with everything going on and with uh, pandemic and so on. One of the oddest to me, though, and maybe I'm misreading this, but a lot of times you go into a doctor's office, at least you, for a while there, you'd go into a doctor's office and they would check your temperature as you were going in. And I was always kind of curious about that. Because I'm assuming if you had a temperature, they would turn you away, right? Because they don't want anybody in the, the doctor's office being exposed. And I'm thinking to myself, the reason I'm going to the doctor is because I have a temperature, right? In a way, Jesus saying is similar to that because he's saying, you know, what, wouldn't it be weird if a doctor wouldn't see sick patients? If he only hung out with all of his doctor friends and never actually took any patients? That's what Jesus came for is to treat people. He came for the lost, to redeem them. And if you don't think you need a Savior, you're going to stand outside the house with the Pharisees. If you think you're a destitute sinner who has nothing to give, you're going to be inside the house with the tax collectors. So what I've done so far is just walk through the passage. I want to go back through it again and kind of connect this a little bit, hopefully uh, drive home some application. Because I remember I began the message by making the strange statement, it's good to be a sinner. So let me give you three reasons why. Three reasons why it's good to be a sinner, or at least good to recognize that we are sinners. The first is this, God's grace is greater than all our sin. We sang about that this morning, and for good reason. The grace of God is greater than all our sin and shame. So I rejoice not that I am a sinner, but that God's grace abounds to me, a sinner. So let's go back to the beginning for a second. Here's Matthew, or Levi. I'm going to call him Matthew for the rest of our time. He's sitting in the tax office. Now, again, I said this isn't the first time he's heard about Jesus. Everybody's been talking about him. He's probably been hearing about it. But... I imagine in his heart of hearts, Matthew is thinking, Jesus doesn't have any interest in a tax collector like me. I mean, I'm, a, I'm just not a good person. Like, I can't even go to the synagogue to hear him in there because people don't care for me. I'm not good. So why would Jesus take time out of his valuable day and come over here and talk with me? Now, again, I don't think that Jesus hypnotized Matthew and led him off in a trance. I think that Matthew already came to know that he was not a good person, that he was a tax collector, a sinner. Perhaps he had heard Jesus for a long time and wondered what it would be like to be accepted by Jesus, to walk with him. But how? I mean, he's a defiled tax collector. He's worse than an enemy. He's a traitor to his own people. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but it says he's the son of Alphaeus. Now, unless Alphaeus was a scoundrel himself, I'll bet he was a huge disappointment. Matthew was a huge disappointment to his dad. I mean, who wants to raise a tax collector? I mean, he wanted his, a son who would go off and you know, live as a faithful Jewish man, have a family, uh, sit in the synagogue, learn the scriptures. But here he is, a tax collector, a disappointment to his family, an outcast in his community, Certainly, the grace of God would have to abound if it was going to find a a sinner like Matthew. He didn't have any delusions of self-made righteousness. Everybody knew he was the worst sinner in town, and he knew it himself. So what wonder, what grace that Jesus seeks out this man? 
He seeks out the sinners, not the righteous. Jesus walked past the tax office that day and said, here's the person I came to save. Not the, not the folks gathered on the synagogue per se, but sinners, people who know who they are and what they need. So no one ought to despair. No person ought to think to themselves, I'm just too sinful. I don't think, I don't think Jesus could ever love me. I don't think God could ever accept me. See, God's grace is for people just like Matthew, people just like you. The condition? Well, you have to realize you need a physician. You you must realize you're unrighteous and need the righteousness of Jesus to your account. You can't get to heaven on your own. You need a Savior. God's grace, thankfully, is greater than all our sin. That's why it's good to be a sinner. If God's grace abounds to sinners, then... Praise God, it abounds to me, because that's what I am. There once was a Prussian king I read about who went on a tour of a prison in his capital city. And as he went through the usual things, but what happened was prisoner after prisoner that he he came upon would fall down in front of him and say, no, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I shouldn't be in here, I was wrongly accused. And this happened over and over and over again until he saw over in the corner a person standing a a bit of a distance. And he said, sir, what have you done to be in this place? He answered, armed robbery, your majesty. He said, well, are you guilty? Yes, indeed, your majesty, I deserve this punishment. The king then waved for the jailer and ordered him, release this man. I don't want him kept in a prison where he will corrupt all these innocent men. (laughs) You see, he knew why he was there. He knew he had done wrong. And yet, the world is filled with people who are saying, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. And yet, it's the one who recognizes I'm a sinner that finds grace. Not only does God's grace greater than all of our sin... God's grace welcomes sinners. This is another reason why it's good to be a sinner. Because Jesus welcomes sinners to himself. And this is a great passage to see it because here Christ sits down, shares a meal with sinners and tax collectors. Now that's not to say he approves of their sin, right? Just like the woman who was caught adultery, he says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. In our passage, Jesus attends this banquet, and the guests are all these deplorables and outcasts and sinners and tax collectors. And it's not that Jesus liked hanging around with drunks and prostitutes because he appreciated their lifestyle or something. These were people who recognized they were lost. These were people who weren't, who weren't afraid to associate with Jesus, and therefore Jesus was not afraid to associate with them. They were people who sought a physician. They knew they were sick. And so Jesus sits around the table with them. Even though they weren't welcome in the synagogue, they were welcome at Jesus' table. And again, this is good news for sinners. If Jesus welcomes sinners to himself, then I would say it's good to be a sinner, right? Because the Bible is clear. All have sinned. Everyone has sinned. We've turned away to our own path. We've gone astray. And yet the Bible is also clear that God is holy. God does not tolerate sin. It's not in his nature. So 
what are we to do then? How, how are we to get past this impasse, as it were? How can the Lord welcome sinners if he's a holy God? Well, the answer ultimately is found at the cross, where our punishment is not overlooked or ignored. It's carried out, just not on us. The suffering Savior takes our place, and he takes our guilt. It is paid in full. Our sin is not just ignored or cast aside. It is paid for to the utmost in the person of Jesus. He died for our sins that we might be set free. What wonder is there in the cross? That's why we sing about it. That's why we celebrate it. That's why we remember it. It's because the cross made possible for Jesus to welcome sinners to himself. As best I can remember... In the Bible, there's never a scene that I, can, that I found where Jesus is sitting having a meal with Pharisees. Because again, the Pharisees didn't think they needed Jesus. Sinners, on the other hand, know they need him. The Pharisees, on the contrast, judged themselves too good for Jesus. He ate with the likes of Matthew. But if sinners are the ones who are welcome to Jesus' banquet and Pharisees are not, then I want to be a sinner, not a Pharisee. Finally, though, third reason it's good to be a sinner is that God's grace is withheld, withheld from the self-righteous. So if the sinners gathered around Matthew's table experienced God's grace, not the self-righteous Pharisees outside. And the wording here is maybe a little bit uh, not the best because God's grace is not withheld from the self-righteous. Rather, the self-righteous don't seek God's grace. They're the ones who are at fault. They don't think they need Jesus. The Pharisees outside the house didn't think they needed forgiveness or grace. They were law keepers. They had done everything by the book. And all the while, they were puffed up with pride and arrogance, things God detests. See, self-righteousness is a dangerous place to be because it makes someone blind to your own spiritual condition. A self-righteous person thinks, I don't need a Savior. And it's actually, in some ways, a more dangerous place to be. You know, if if somebody thinks they're not sick, they're not going to go to the doctor. I, I briefly read this week about the phenomenon known as diagnosis denial. So sometimes when people are given a diagnosis, especially something very catastrophic, uh, like cancer, for instance, people will go through sort of a grieving process as they process that information. And the first stage is denial. Sometimes people, like a doctor, will come out and tell them what's going on, and they just refuse to accept it, refuse to believe it. One doctor said it like this, as physicians, we regularly encounter patients who for one reason or another simply don't fully accept their diagnosis. It's a cause of frustration for the patients, their family members, and the treating clinicians. It's frustrating because if they won't accept the diagnosis, they're not going to accept the treatment, right? It's when the person comes to realize, oh, I do have this. I do need help. I do need a doctor. And so it is with self-righteousness. They don't find the grace of God because they won't admit the biblical diagnosis. They won't admit that they are sinners. So the self-righteous does not experience the grace of God because they deem themselves unworthy of eternal life. One of the most familiar stories, not just in the Bible, but probably one of the most familiar stories ever told 
This is the story of the prodigal son. But we oftentimes forget that it's actually the story of two sons. One, the prodigal, takes the family fortune and he goes off into a distant land. He spends it on reckless living and finally ends up in the gutter. Only then does the prodigal realize that the father is merciful. Perhaps he will take me back. And he goes back and guess what? The father welcomes the prodigal home and throws a banquet for him. We oftentimes forget, though, there's another son. He never went off into a distant land. He never spent his fortune on reckless living. He always served the father, and yet his heart was not right. He was jealous, mean-spirited. You see, the, the prodigal son represents the sinner who knows their need, who comes to Jesus. The self-righteous son, though, does not receive the banquet. He does not receive the welcome of the father. He deems himself too good for Jesus. So if the self-righteous forfeit the grace of God, I'd rather be a sinner than a self-righteous Pharisee. So it's good to be a sinner if it means experiencing the grace of God. I'm going to close this morning with a couple of questions. Number one, how do you see yourself? How do you see yourself? Pretty good person? Pretty righteous? Maybe half as big but twice as righteous as next door? Or do you see yourself as a sinner who desperately needs help? Who desperately needs a savior to redeem them? You see, when we look at this scene in Mark chapter 2, there are not Pharisees and tax collectors and scribes and sinners. There's only Jesus and sinners. Some sinners who know they need Jesus and some who don't. But all are sinners. We got to realize who we are and see ourselves through that biblical lens. We're sinners. But let me also say this ask this question How do you see sinners? Are you like the Pharisee saying, who, Those people are not worthy of our time? Those people are, are low lives, they're, they're terrible. We don't want them in our church. We don't want them on our street. We don't want them in our neighborhood. We don't want them at our parks. We don't want them around. Or are we people who have the heart of Christ, who love sinners, and reach out to them with the message of hope and love? Finally, I want to bring us full circle. I began by talking about George Whitfield and Lady Huntington. But I want to tell you about another episode in the lives of those two. Lady Huntington was constantly trying to find ways to promote Whitfield, and again, she had another set of friends who she instructed, hey, you should go listen to George Whitfield preaching this, this next day. So they agreed. They went and listened to Whitfield. When they returned the next day, she asked them, well, what did you think? Here's how they responded. Oh, my lady, of all the preachers we have ever heard, he is the most strange and unaccountable. Among other preposterous things, he declared that Jesus was so willing to receive sinners that he did not object to receive even the devil's outcasts. By my, now my day, or excuse me, now my lady, did you ever hear such a thing since you were born? Lady Huntington puzzled over the statement for a few moments, and then she said, well, since Mr. Whitfield is below in the parlor, why don't we have him come up and let him answer for himself?
So up comes Whitfield, and they asked him, did you really say that Jesus is so willing to accept sinners that he will take the devil's, uh, the devil's outcasts? He answered yes, that's what he had taught, and he also relayed a story of something that had happened that very morning. A poor woman had knocked on the door and asked if Whitfield was the one who had preached last night. He said, yes, I did. Ah, sir, she answered, I was accidentally passing by the door of that chapel, and hearing a voice, I went in. One of the first things I heard you say was that Jesus Christ was so willing to receive sinners that he did not object to receiving the devil's castaways. Now, sir, I have been on the town for many years, and I'm so worn out in service that I think I may, with truth, be called one of the devil's castaways. Do you think, sir, that Jesus Christ would receive me? And that very morning, Whitfield led that woman to Christ. So I would say, indeed, it is good to be a sinner, since Christ has lavished his grace on us, on us who are, in in one sense, the devil's castaways.